0: Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Autumn presents The Scapegoat Written by Helen Lewis Defacement is a beautiful painting and an ugly one. Its alternative name... The Death of Michael Stewart, reveals its subject, a young black man who died in police custody in 1983 after his arrest for allegedly writing graffiti on the wall of a subway station in New York City. Stewart's death shocked the city's artists, many of whom had known him personally. It resonated in particular with young black men, such as Jean-Michel Basquiat, And Fred Brathwaite, known as Fab Five Freddy, who had also been labelled as graffiti artists, undisciplined, dangerous outlaws, even though they were now working on canvas and selling in galleries. I remember being with Jean Michel, Fab told me. We would look at each other without having to say it. We know that could be us. The six officers tried in relation to Stuart's death were cleared two years later by an all white jury. Basquiat took his fear and his anger and responded in the way he knew best. In the days after Stuart's death, he painted Defacement onto the studio wall of another artist, Keith Herring, in precise, furious strokes, two pig-like figures in uniform, raising their batons at a black silhouette. The word Defacement, framed by two question marks, looms above them, posing a question— which is the greater defacement, writing on a subway wall or the police brutality that wipes out young black men's lives. Herring later cut defacement out of his wall, then mounted it in a gold frame and hung it over his bed. He died in 1990 of complications from AIDS, only two years after Basquiat's own death from a heroin overdose. The painting went to Herring's goddaughter, Nina Clemente, and at some point an independent Basque scholar named Shadria Le Bouvier heard about it. She had been captivated by Basquiat since childhood. Her parents had owned three of his drawings. In 2016, Le Bouvier, then in her early 30s, arranged for the Williams College Museum of Art in Massachusetts to display defacement as a powerful statement about police brutality by an artist whose commercial and critical reputation has continued to rise since his death. Nancy Spector, who would soon become artistic director and chief curator at the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum in New York, learned about Le Bouvier's work on the painting. She asked Le Bouvier if she would like to collaborate on an exhibition where defacement could be shown alongside other art responding to the death of Michael Stewart. The exhibition would speak to the political moment. In the years since 17 year old Trayvon Martin had been shot dead, the Black Lives Matter movement had been steadily gaining strength. Spectre's offer led to a high profile exhibition at one of New York's most prominent art institutions, making Le Bouvier a trailblazing black curator in a white dominated world. It also began a chain of events that, in the summer after George Floyd's murder, saw Spectre cast out of the Guggenheim, branded a racist and a bully, and left unemployed, a phenomenon the Colombian artist Doris Salcedo described to me as a social death. All of this happened even though an independent investigation found no evidence that Spectre had racially discriminated against Le Bouvier. How did a simple offer over a single painting lead to such a spectacular destruction of someone's life and career? The answer involves the shifting sands of American corporate life, as newly activist staff demand that institutions take political positions. But there is also a much older ritual at work the tendency of the powerful, when faced with rebellion and called to account for their own behavior, to dump all their errors on a single individual, whose removal then wipes the record clean. Nancy Spector, in other words, was a scapegoat. Many of America's great museums are beset by the same sins. Their low-paid staff struggle to make rent in expensive cities— Curators must answer to boards speckled with old-money elites and the socialite spouses of banking titans. In some museums, almost every gallery bears the name of a different donor. The Guggenheim, like many others, has airbrushed out the Sackler name to avoid association with the opioid magnets. Admission prices for students and senior citizens are subsidized by black-tie galas. Exhibitions that comment on poverty are supported by the country's most successful capitalists. Most major art museums are very white— In 2018, only 4% of American curators were black, according to a survey by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. The collections are slowly diversifying, but only 1.2% of artworks across 18 major American museums are by black artists, and the big crowds still flock to the great white males. Picasso, Monet, Van Gogh, Pollock, Warhol. All of these realities have left museums struggling to speak with authority on the legacy of slavery and segregation, the toll of police violence and racial injustice. The sector is also overwhelmingly left wing, though not in the sense of burning down the New York Stock Exchange and sowing the ground with salt. But liberal values pervade these institutions with two obvious effects. The first is that charges of racism, sexism, transphobia, and other types of discrimination are taken very seriously. And second, when Donald Trump was elected president in November 2016, the art world freaked out. Many prominent artists immediately voiced their horror. The arrival of Trump in the White House gave a new urgency to the idea that museums needed to decolonize their collections, atone for their past elitism, and become overtly political institutions rather than mere warehouses of valuable objects. Gary Gerrels, then the senior curator at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, told the New York Times that the Fuhrer over open casket, a work by the white artist Dana Schatz, was a wake-up call. In March 2017, this painting of the broken face of Emmett Till was displayed at the Whitney Biennial, a regular showcase of new American art. In an earlier time, it might have been received as being part of a tradition of bearing witness to the effects of racism. When 14-year-old Till was lynched by white men in 1955, his mother, Mamie, had his body displayed in an open casket. Let the world see what I've seen, she told the funeral director. Tens of thousands lined up to do just that. Pay tribute to another young black life ended too soon. Another defacement. More than half a century later, however, many black commentators now express deep ambivalence about displaying images and artifacts from America's racist past. Some worry that sensationalism has replaced genuine reflection, So when Schetzer's painting went on display in New York City, it caused an immediate backlash. The artist Parker Bright stood in front of it, wearing a T-shirt that read Black Death Spectacle. In a letter to the show's curators, the artist and writer Hannah Black demanded that Open Casket be not only removed from display but destroyed— It was not acceptable for a white person to transmute black suffering into profit and fun, though the practice has been normalized for a long time, she argued. Schutz had never put the painting up for sale and has since withdrawn it from circulation— That same year, another controversy erupted at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis, when Native American leaders protested the installation of a work called Scaffold. The huge wood and metal platform included a representation of the gallows used to put 38 Dakota men to death at the hands of the state in 1862. It was supposed to draw attention to capital punishment, but activists felt it was insensitive. They also noted that Scaffold, situated in the Minneapolis Sculpture Garden, stood on former Dakota land. The artwork was dismantled, and the museum's executive director, Olga Viso, stepped down shortly afterward. Viso declined to discuss the specifics of her departure. The artist behind Scaffold, Sam Durant, initially apologized for his thoughtlessness. But three years later, on his website, he expressed his dissatisfaction with the museum's approach to the controversy. I have been accused of being racist because my work makes visible, existing, and historical systems of racial domination, blaming the messenger, as it were. In Durant's view, he had been singled out to pay for the Walker's founding sin, America's founding sin of colonialism and expropriation. Around the same time, political concerns were getting louder at the Guggenheim. According to several sources, in late 2016, some staff members expressed frustration that the museum was not doing more to signal its opposition to Trump. Then Nancy Spector, as the chief curator, had a chance to join the hashtag resistance. In 2017, the White House got in touch to request the loan of a Van Gogh. Spectre instead offered an artwork by Maurizio Catalan called America, a solid gold toilet. Liberals on Twitter loved the insult. You spend your life hoping one day you'll get the chance to respond to an unreasonable request in a manner worthy of Oscar Wilde, tweeted a Georgetown law professor named Addison B. Francois. For this one Guggenheim curator, that moment came last September, and as the kids say, she didn't throw away her shot. The Guggenheim and Spectre were successfully navigating the new mood. A few months later, Shadria Le Bouvier arrived at the museum, ready to work on the Bosquia exhibition. Le Bouvier and Spectre had very different backgrounds and personalities. That much was obvious from the start. Both declined requests to be interviewed for this story. Spectre, now 63, grew up in a middle-class Jewish family in Albany and graduated from the liberal arts college, Sarah Lawrence. By the time she met Le Bouvier, Spectre had spent almost her entire career At the Guggenheim, she once described herself to New York Magazine as a product of the 70s, who'd nursed her two children in Guggenheim meetings. Her position as artistic director and chief curator eventually paid $299,560 a year, according to the institution's tax filings. Friends note her jitteriness and her tiny stature, only four foot eleven, portraying her as a black-clad hummingbird, Who never puts her phone on silent. Even one of Spectre's admirers described her as shy in a way that strangers sometimes mistake for coldness. At first, I found her to be rather serious, the Chinese artist Tai Go Chiang told me. They first met in 1996, and he praised Spectre as one of the first Western curators to show an active interest in my art." particularly its culturally specific elements, such as the use of gunpowder and traditional Chinese medicine. By contrast, Le Bouvier comes across as fierce and direct. On Twitter, her display name is No Quarter Will Be Given. Born in Texas, she graduated with a degree in history from Williams College. She was an outsider to the self-important art world, Le Bouvier knew what it was like to lose a loved one at the hands of the police, so perhaps defacement had extra resonance for her. In 2013, her 25-year-old brother, Clinton Allen, was killed by a police officer. No criminal charges were ever brought against the officer who shot Allen, who was unarmed. Le Bouvier was 27 at the time, and training to be a screenwriter, but, she has written, she took a career break to care for her brother's twin boys. After arriving at the Guggenheim, Le Bouvier began work on a catalogue for the exhibition. She interviewed Basquiat's friends and fellow artists, including Fab Five Freddy. He was delighted by the show, he told me, and by Spectre's choice of Le Bouvier to curate it. He had met Le Bouvier years before at a gallery opening and seen firsthand. Her love of Basquiat's work. I was amazed and impressed that a person that's not from the art world or a curatorial background was given a chance to curate a major exhibit, he told me. I thought it was incredible. But things soon began to go wrong. Le Bouvier felt disrespected by the Guggenheim's desire to edit sections of the essay she had prepared for the exhibition catalogue. Months later, in a curatorial meeting, Spectre told her staff... Where it really went downhill is when she turned in her essay. According to a leaked transcript of the meeting, another curator seconded Spectre's account, describing the work as poorly written and lax in its scholarship. They told Le Bouvier it would need to be reworked extensively and suggested she could be credited as a co-author alongside Spectre and another curator. Le Bouvier was insulted, I said fuck no and fought back, she later tweeted. She met with Fab Five Freddy, trying to persuade him to withdraw his interview from the catalogue. He tried to talk her down, he told me. He didn't think the issues she raised were as serious or as big or as problematic as she made them out to be. He urged... Le Bouvier to focus on the importance of the exhibition to Basquiat's and Michael Stewart's legacies, and what it would mean to have a museum as powerful as the Guggenheim address the subject of police racism. Fab Five Freddy believes in the transformative power of museums. He and Basquiat would walk through the Metropolitan Museum of Art as young men, looking at the Caravaggios and the Pollocks, imagining their own work gaining admittance to the high cathedrals of American culture someday. Le Bouvier continued working on the show, but her concerns remained. According to multiple sources, she tried to persuade other interviewees to withdraw from the project, and to mollify her, the museum renegotiated her fee and gave her sole credit for the catalogue. Le Bouvier later said on Twitter she was unhappy that the Guggenheim described her only as the first black solo curator, on the technical grounds that the Nigerian curator, Okui Enwezo, had been involved in organizing a show in 1996. The Guggenheim said that Le Bouvier was never described this way in publicity materials. Instead, she was called a guest curator, Le Bouvier also argued that she was not properly credited in the letters requesting loans of artworks and that the museum was sabotaging her by refusing to pass on journalists' requests for interviews. In the spring of 2019, as the opening of Basquiat's defacement the untold story approached. Le Bouvier spoke at a private event for donors at the Brandt Foundation, and the museum flew her to Abu Dhabi, where it was building a new outpost to participate in a panel on Basquiat and graffiti art. In June, she spoke at the exhibition's press launch, but the friction between Le Bouvier and the museum kept getting worse. After the opening, she brought guests for a private after-hours tour— In the leaked meeting transcript, Spectre claims that Le Bouvier had not alerted security beforehand, a major breach for a museum employee that shocked other members of the curatorial department. Soon, these tensions spilled into the press coverage. Le Bouvier noted, accurately, that she was working in an institution where senior staff were used to being treated with deference by junior staff— I think it will be better for the black curators coming after me, she told the New York Times. For instance, if I didn't review something, that meant that no person of color looked at that document or process. And certainly it felt at times that there was an expectation that I would just be grateful to be in the room. In the same interview, she criticized the museum for not providing extended captions for the artworks and said that it was inept at dealing with the nuances of black identity. On the penultimate day of the exhibition, in November 2019, a panel was held at the Guggenheim to discuss the three overlapping exhibitions there, all of which included work by artists of colour. The speakers included Ashley James, who had recently been hired as the museum's first full-time black curator, but conspicuously not Le Bouvier. She went to the panel anyway and stood up during the Q&A to say that as someone that truly lives the politics of human dignity, her omission was so violent. The panel's multiracial makeup was itself a provocation to her. To weaponize a panel of black bodies of color to do your filth is insane. This is insane. And this is how institutional white supremacy works. Elizabeth Dougal, then the Chief Operating Officer of the Guggenheim, was also in the audience sitting next to Spectre. She stood up after Le Bouvier and said that the museum does truly respect and appreciate your work, and that Le Bouvier's research had been acknowledged by the panel. Up to this point, the alienation of Le Bouvier from the Guggenheim seemed like an everyday story of mismatched expectations, a stiff institutional culture confronted by an outsider, unwilling to bend to its shibboleths. Le Bouvier tweeted and received modest engagement. The Guggenheim largely stayed quiet, refusing to take part in a public quarrel that put its name in the same sentence as racism. As 2020 dawned, it looked as though the storm had blown over. But then another black man had a fatal encounter with the police. On May 25, 2020, George Floyd was choked to death by a police officer in Minneapolis. His slow, casually sadistic murder, captured on a smartphone and posted online, came in the fourth year of Trump's presidency, two months after the Guggenheim and other museums had closed their doors because of the coronavirus pandemic. Many Americans were trapped at home, frightened for their lives, apart from their friends and family. Meetings had turned into Zooms. Managers could no longer speak to their employees face to face. Slack channels and social media feeds buzzed with fear, outrage, and hurt. At the Guggenheim, which ultimately stayed closed for six months, 92 of the museum's nearly 300 staff were furloughed. In this frightened, anxious time, the Black Lives Matter movement gathered force, prompting peaceful demonstrations, scattered riots, and an outpouring of solidarity across the country. In the art world, dominated by rich white donors and white senior staff, these events also led to something like panic. Could a cultural world that prided itself on progressive values really claim it had done everything possible to pursue racial justice? Surely not. While the white leaders of institutions were examining their own conscience, their young staff were in no mood to be fobbed off with platitudes. They wanted change fast. A week and a day after Floyd's death, the Guggenheim, along with many other businesses and individuals, posted a simple black square to its social feeds. The initiative was called Hashtag Blackout Tuesday, and it was used to signal that Floyd's death would not be ignored or minimized. But some black artists and activists found Blackout Tuesday performative and empty. Shadria Le Bouvier was one of those dissenters. She, quote, tweeted the Guggenheim's post, adding, Get the entire fuck out of here. I am Shadria LeBouvier, the first black curator in your 80-year history, and you refused to acknowledge that while also allowing Nancy Spector to host a panel about my work without inviting me. Erase this shit. She followed this up with a long viral thread the next day, claiming that working at the Guggenheim was the most racist professional experience of my life. She zeroed in on Spectre, the woman who had brought her into the museum's orbit, but who, according to Le Bouvier, was trying to co-opt my work and likened her to Amy Cooper, the Central Park Karen, a white woman who had recently been in the news after she called the police on a black birdwatcher. In this new climate... The Guggenheim could not just ignore the story and hope it would go away. In a statement to Essence magazine, the museum recognised the missteps made in our 80-year history and said it was committed to doing the work. Had the museum looked more closely at Le Bouvier's feed, its board might have seen her complaints as part of a long-standing pattern of excoriating others who were interested in defacement or Basquiat, even when they sought out her opinion. Back in June 2017, Le Bouvier had complained about a lightweight Basquiat exhibition in London, which did not feature defacement, by tweeting that a curator involved was a mediocre bitch trying to erase me from my own defacement conversation, and that she belonged to a special ring of yoga feminist hell. When the woman emailed offering to thank Le Bouvier in the exhibition's acknowledgements, she tweeted, LOL, hashtag bitch, please. The same year, Le Bouvier claimed on Twitter that David Shulman, the producer of a BBC Basquiat documentary, stole my research. In a statement, a BBC studio spokesperson said, We are proud of this award-winning documentary and stand by our work on it. All the information on Basquiat's painting, Defacement, came from primary sources and is presented solely in first-person accounts. Two years later... Le Bouvier tweeted a complaint that a writer for British GQ found new interviewees to discuss points that she had made previously, rather than citing an article she had written for Dazed magazine. I am so tired of these unoriginal ass white people writing about Basquiat, curating Basquiat, and they are stealing the entire goddamn time, she wrote. The current editor of Dazed reviewed correspondence from the incident and said that, at the time, the magazine did not find plagiarism to have taken place. In 2019, Le Bouvier's criticisms had gained some attention, but prompted no action. The summer of 2020 gave such disputes new meaning. Nancy Specter had the misfortune to be the focus of Le Bouvier's latest tweets at a time of heightened racial sensitivity, and also a time when the Guggenheim's leadership could not gather its staff together in person to dampen the smouldering discontent. On June 8th, diversity consultants hired by the museum convened a Zoom meeting to discuss the situation. Staff members were asked to sort themselves into gravel, paved, boulevard, and highway rooms, depending on how smoothly they felt able to navigate racial issues in the workplace. By the end, some were in tears. Over the next two weeks, the curatorial team agreed to meet on Zoom without Spectre, so they could speak freely. One of these meetings was five hours long. Anonymous feedback was solicited through a Google form, which was then collected in a 10-page document, complete with a cover letter addressed to Richard Armstrong, the director of the museum, Sarah Austrian, the deputy director and general counsel, Elizabeth Dougal, the COO, and Spectre herself. In 58 bullet points soon leaked to the press, it laid out a roster of complaints and demands, including, "'Can we please all self-reflect our privilege?' and some staff expressed feeling obligated to do work on behalf of the museum that they don't personally agree with, and sometimes are morally opposed to." The staff also shared concerns about a gender pay gap, racial disparities among those furloughed, a lack of performance reviews, and a culture of retribution against anyone who complained. Nine of the 58 bullet points related to Le Bouvier and the Basquiat exhibition, although the only direct accusation of racism by Spectre was that she had, in an unrelated incident, confused two East Asian staff members with each other. Both Armstrong's handling of the defacement crisis and Dougal's decision to respond to Le Bouvier at the panel were heavily criticised. We cannot move forward with any credibility until we offer Le Bouvier a sincere, unqualified public apology, one of the bullet points concluded. The letter was signed by the curatorial department. Spectre had lost the confidence of her team. In subsequent days, it emerged that... On the 23-person curatorial staff, one holdout had refused to join the protest. He soon resigned from the museum and wrote his own letter, which condemned the attempt to find a single scapegoat. The curatorial letter was followed by another from a new pressure group, calling itself a Better Guggenheim, composed of current and former employees. On June 29th, the group published an open letter to the board alleging that the most visible egregious act of anti-black violence in the museum's recent history was the disrespectful and publicly hostile treatment of Shadria Le Bouvier. In the aftermath of the Curatorial Department's meetings, by some alchemical process, the general swirl of blame had settled on Nancy Spector. She was now the public face of the art world's PR crisis. Her position at the Guggenheim was untenable. The museum commissioned an independent investigation into Le Bouvier's allegations, and on July 1st, Spector went on a three-month sabbatical. The campaign to oust her kept gathering momentum. A Better Guggenheim soon had its own professional-looking website. It also launched an Instagram page, which carried anonymous stories, including the allegation that Spectre had once praised a security guard's wonderful Caribbean lilt. She had been describing a guard who liked to sing as he made his rounds in the museum's rotunda. In October 2019, the museum had considered this observation worth amplifying and tweeted it out from its institutional account. The members of A Better Guggenheim have mostly remained anonymous, citing fears of retribution— the New York Post has alleged that it is entirely led by white women. When I asked for comment on that claim, the group, which insisted on replying collectively and anonymously to my email messages, told me that this was false. Over the summer of 2020, their demands expanded to calling for the resignation of Nancy Spector, Elizabeth Dougal, and Richard Armstrong. Nancy Spector's immediate boss, who was accused of having sullied his 12 year tenure as director by nurturing a culture of unchecked racism, sexism, and classism, and having prioritized putting up shelving in his office over creating workspaces for employees. He was further accused of initially failing to meet with Le Bouvier before acting in a combative and dismissive manner when he did. The statement, linked to a viral 2019 tweet by Le Bouvier suggesting that Armstrong literally rolled his eyes when I told him how he enabled violence. A spokesperson for the Guggenheim told me that it rejects this characterization of our culture and of Richard Armstrong's actions regarding Miss Le Bouvier. In all, 22 accusations were made against Armstrong and 11 against Spectre. Thanks to this public pressure, the whole leadership of the museum was in the frame, and if this truly was a revolutionary moment, the twenty-five members of the Guggenheim's Board of Trustees, twenty-three of whom were white, had good reason to be worried. The board's membership reflects a world of inherited wealth and status, of heirs and wives, of high-altitude people whose undoubted commitment to the arts is nonetheless enabled by their personal fortunes and connections. How safe were the board seats of Peter Lawson Johnston, a grandson of the museum's founder, Solomon R. Guggenheim, and his son... Peter Lawson Johnston II? If radical change was in the air, what about the investment banker Paul Cronson, whose appointment coincided with one Mary Sharp Cronson becoming a trustee emeritus? She is his mother. The museum needed to show it was taking action. The ferocity, and if you were a supporter, the courage of Le Bouvier's denunciation simply made the Guggenheim the most high-profile art world target during a summer of discontent. But there were others, too. Take the event in Cleveland. On June 6, the Afro-Latino artist Sean Leonardo went public with his disappointment over the cancellation of his show, The Breath of Empty Space, by the city's Museum of Contemporary Art. In an email to his supporters, Leonardo called the cancellation an act of censorship caused by institutional white fragility. The real story was here. Leonardo's work featured drawings based on photographs and video footage of police brutality. Among the scenes depicted was the setting of the death of 12-year-old Tamir Rice, who was killed in Cleveland in 2014 by a police officer. This local connection made the exhibition politically sensitive and Leonardo had written to Rice's mother, Samaria, to alert her in advance. She opposed the exhibition saying Leonardo should not benefit off my son's death and sent him a cease and desist letter. The situation was further complicated by a staff revolt against showing the works, led by a curatorial fellow who warned that It could become, for white people, a type of pornographic viewing. And so, just before the pandemic closed Mocha Cleveland for four months, the museum's director of 23 years, Jill Snyder, cancelled Leonardo's show, later saying it stirs the trauma back up for the very community that it is intending to reach. However, in trying to avoid upsetting a grieving black family and her own employees, "'Snyder upset a black artist. "'In March, when the exhibition was cancelled, "'this was a regrettable situation "'that generated no headlines. "'By June, though, in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, "'it had become poison.' The story looked simple. A white-led museum was censoring a black artist making work about racism. The day after Leonardo complained, Snyder publicly apologized, admitting, i failure in working through the challenges this exhibition presented together with Mr. Leonardo. Two weeks later, she resigned. The rules were unclear and in flux. Dana Schatz and the Whitney had been castigated for showing black pain in the form of open casket. Jill Snyder left Mocha, Cleveland, after refusing to show black pain in the form of drawings of Tamir Rice's place of death. Display or don't. Cancel or don't. There was no right answer, except perhaps to go back in time and erase the sins of America's past. The racial reckoning of 2020 was righteous and overdue, but its targets were haphazard. Activists wanted sweeping changes. Instead, they got individual firings and forced resignations. If directors or curators face controversy, boards often find it easier to start over with new leadership. Olga Viso, formerly of the Walker Art Center, told me, while transitions can often accelerate the pace of change, they can also defer the potential for systemic restructure. In San Francisco... The senior curator of SF MoMA, Gary Gerrels, was also forced to step down. Gerrals, a gay man who had overseen the sale of one of the museum's Rothkos for $50 million to fund the purchase of more art by women and people of colour, might have believed that his progressive credentials were impeccable. But in a Zoom meeting in early July, he was asked about the museum's collection policy— he wanted to collect a more diverse range of artists, he said, but it would be impossible to stop purchasing the art of white men altogether. That would be reverse discrimination. Those two words ended his career. At the Zoom meeting, the chat box immediately exploded in condemnation. On July eleventh, 2020, Geralt sent a resignation letter to all staff. I realized almost as soon as I used the term reverse discrimination that this is an offensive term and was an extremely poor choice of words on my part, he wrote. One person with knowledge of the situation told me that activist staffers at SF MoMA wanted the industrial death penalty for Geralds and the museum threw Gary to the wolves. The whole idea is, I'm going to give you what you want, but you won't eat me. Geralds is believed to have received a payout in return for a non-disparagement and non-disclosure agreement. He declined to talk with me for this story. A spokesperson for SF MoMA disputed that Geralds was forced out and said that the museum would not otherwise comment on personnel matters. Doris Salcedo, who worked with Geralds on an early exhibition of her work, described him to me as a brilliant, progressive, intelligent man. Citing the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas, she said, when a person is not allowed an apology, his death, either his physical or social death, has already been determined. This mob destruction of a progressive thinker like Gary must be a joke for the very rich." In October 2020, after a summer of relentless pressure by campaign groups, the investigation into Spectre, by the law firm Kramer Levin, reported its conclusions. The firm had reviewed 15,000 documents and messages and interviewed current and former staff members, although Shadria Labouvier had declined to be interviewed, saying it was not safe to do so. A better Guggenheim supported her decision, later saying, we think it makes perfect sense that she would not feel safe participating in an investigation of questionable independence. According to a statement from the Guggenheim's Board of Trustees, published on October 8th, investigators found no evidence that Miss Le Bouvier was subject to adverse treatment on the basis of her race. The Guggenheim declined to provide the full text of the investigators' report. It didn't matter... A separate statement from the board issued the same day revealed that Spectre was leaving the Guggenheim, ending an association dating back 34 years. A line had been drawn. In the media, the words Guggenheim and racism would no longer be placed in the same sentence. When Nancy Spector left the Guggenheim, she lost more than her job. She lost her professional reputation, she lost friends, and she lost the rest of her career. She had taught intermittently at Yale's School of Art since 1994, but has not been invited back since leaving the Guggenheim. Now, in her 60s, Spector cannot easily rebuild the life she once had. Enough time has passed for many of those who were uneasy about what happened that summer to reflect on those events and their role in them. One former Guggenheim colleague told me that she thought about what happened to Spectre every day, but that she was too afraid for her future career to speak on the record. Another source told me he was taking the risk of speaking with me because a friend had been forced out of a job in another industry and had later killed himself. Many of my interview requests for this story went unacknowledged. Non-disclosure agreements are common in the art world, and even in their absence, the pool of desirable jobs is small enough to make any potential whistleblower cautious of being informally blacklisted. Established artists, who have more financial and personal independence, were the group most willing to talk with me— Taigo Chiang told me that he was one of many artists who had been championed by Spectre. Because her focus is on the exploratory spirit and creativity of artists, her curatorial practice naturally reflected cultural and ethnic diversity, as well as an open and inclusive attitude towards different cultures, he said. I don't want to be positioned as a validator, the artist Hank Willis Thomas, who has worked with Spectre, told me. Like, oh, this black guy said they were nice. But he agreed that there had been scapegoating and added, the feeling that one person has to be banished in order for another person to get an opportunity is really antiquated. He worried that the manner of Spectre's departure had cast a shadow over the appointment of Naomi Beckwith as her replacement, that Beckwith, a black woman with a brilliant career, would be seen as a fix to an institutional problem, as if she didn't deserve the opportunity independently. In hindsight, the summer of 2020 was revolutionary in both good and bad ways. Noble goals were being pursued, but the ground was constantly shifting, and it was unwise to end up on the wrong side of the revolutionaries. People are complicated, and not every workplace dispute between individuals can bear the entire weight of America's racial history. The philosopher Oliver Trolde has described the phenomenon, often known as cancel culture, as a combination of widespread precarity, unclear social norms, distributed surveillance, and the presence of lots of small and fervent groups, which can organize to exert a great deal of pressure on people through social media. While Le Bouvier was tweeting her complaints about the Boschier show, the senior staff had been focused on the next exhibition at the museum, which showcased the work of the architect Rem Koolhaas. According to the leaked meeting transcript, the younger staff saw Koolhaas as, inspectors paraphrase, the 70-year-old white man from Holland who's getting everything he wants. They felt the museum was playing by the old rules, whereby the most dangerous person to offend was the celebrity with his name on the posters. In the new world, the power had shifted to those who could attract the most attention on Twitter. This realignment caused a shiver to run through the art world. This social media censorship, it's far more effective than the censorship a person like me in Colombia, a third world violent country, can experience from its government because it destroys your moral integrity, Salcedo told me. As in any revolution, who survived and who fell foul of the crowd was often arbitrary. Keith Christensen a Met curator since 1977, made an Instagram post on June 19, 2020, that asked, How many great works of art have been lost to the desire to rid ourselves of a past of which we don't approve? It read as a criticism of the Black Lives Matter movement and prompted a condemnatory letter by 15 staff members. Christensen deleted the post and apologized, but was allowed to quietly retire and is still listed by the Met as a curator emeritus. One of my interviewees noted that a disproportionate number of the senior curators who have departed in difficult circumstances were white women or gay people, groups who rose into leadership positions when those were considered marginalized identities, before their whiteness became more politically salient than their gender or sexuality. Luke Nikas, a lawyer who represented Olga Visa in her settlement with the Walker Art Center, told me that she was one of half a dozen clients with similar stories. Women in top museum jobs, he said, face a harsher reaction than men when they have to make tough personnel or curatorial decisions. He has agreed to represent several female curators pro bono because he believes that museums should not be run like risk averse corporations. If a bank or an ice cream company bows to social media pressure, that's a matter for them. But art is supposed to be where provocative questions are asked, and taboos are challenged. Marilyn Minter, an educator and artist, sees a generational change behind the spate of firings and forced resignations. In the 1980s, when her work drawing on pornographic images was attacked by the Christian right— and by radical feminists, her fellow artists stood with her. But Nancy Spector did not receive the support of her peers, Minter suggested, because the social media world is trying to erase imperfection, and imperfection is who we are. To see this tidied-up world, it's going to make everybody feel like a failure constantly. In August, I sent an Instagram message to Le Bouvier asking if we might speak for this article. In her reply, Le Bouvier castigated The Atlantic for not having covered her Guggenheim exhibition or its fallout. Where were you in 2019 or 2020, she asked. Fuck you and your arrogance. Le Bouvier followed up by email, copying the executive editor at the magazine. I am not interested in participating in a piece that, through lack of expertise, thoroughness, research, or fortitude, will resign me as a footnote and amplify a glorified publicity stunt, she wrote, calling me another example of a clueless, rapacious white woman. I am so tired of scavenging journalists attempting to speak for me or depict me I am nothing if not direct, and I have always said it from my chest and with my name on it. She closed with a warning. Should you fuck this up, which you will, I will be on your ass like white on rice on a paper plate in a snowstorm at a KKK rally. Two years on from the events of that long feverish summer at the Guggenheim, what did all its protests and panic accomplish? More than a tenth of the museum's staff was laid off because of the pandemic. In 2020, Richard Armstrong, the director who was described as nurturing a culture of unchecked racism, sexism, and classism by a better Guggenheim, earned $1.1 million plus $400,000 in deferred compensation from previous years. This past July, the 73-year-old announced his retirement— When asked for comment, the Guggenheim noted its wider diversity efforts, including the appointment of six board members of colour. The Guggenheim has worked hard to change itself, Ben Rawlingson-Plant, the museum's deputy director for global public affairs and communications, told me. The vast majority of our executive team have joined the museum in the last three years, myself included. For the moment, a better Guggenheim is withholding judgment. While the group welcomed Spectre's ousting, as well as recent unionization efforts at the museum, it also told me that until the Guggenheim fully addresses its deep-rooted institutional racism with a focus on how its most vulnerable staff are treated, we will continue to call for change. The Guggenheim Foundation still has enormous wealth. Its latest tax filing shows $236,296,508 in assets and is close to opening its offshoot in Abu Dhabi, a Gulf emirate, where arbitrary detention is common, freedom of the press is severely restricted, and homosexuality is illegal. About 90% of the population are migrant workers, many of whom face exploitation and low wages, according to Human Rights Watch. Le Bouvier has not announced another job since calling out the Guggenheim, and Spectre has not found another full-time position, neither has Gary Gerrels of SFMOMA. What's so painful is that Nancy is such a great curator. Gary was a great curator, and they have no jobs, Minter told me. She predicted a backlash against the current atmosphere in the art world. People have to be able to redeem themselves. They have to be able to make mistakes, she said. Otherwise, creativity is going to be killed. In 2019, Jenny Holzer was one of six artists whom Nancy Spector asked to curate their own selections from the Guggenheim's archives. Holtzer chose only pieces by women, implicitly criticizing the museum for collecting so few female artists throughout the 20th century. Asked for comment on Spectre's fate, she made an even starker criticism, replying in her signature block capitals, Racism is criminal. Scapegoating is a cruel dodge. If you enjoyed this production,